Good morning, Calvary family. Um, my name is Jen McAvenny. Um, if that video stirred your heart or piqued your interest, um, we would love to have you join us next January. Um, we set a goal of building five homes, but why not make it six homes? Um, so thank you to all the faithful families that I can see out in the audience that serve and give and donate to make that trip happen. Um, I have the privilege this morning to read um, our scripture passage out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. Some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. I beheaded John, Herod said, so who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. Amen. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. And thank you, Jen, and many others who I think are living their lives answering this question. The way they live their lives is answering the question of who do you say that I am? That belief in Jesus is about how we live. And so there's this question, who is this? Who is this? That's what this whole series that we're going through right now is, is all about. Who is this? this? This person that's doing all these sort of wild and crazy things. They're hearing stories about miracles. They're hearing stories about people maybe even being raised from the dead. And they're just wondering, who is this person that that could be doing all of this. And so people are asking like, who is this guy? What, what's he about? From the lowliest of the low to the most powerful in the kingdom, they're all wondering. But Jesus turns to them and says, who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? What's your answer to this question? And that's what's so, so important. But let's look at uh, the way a few people in this, this video from the Alpha Course, the way a few people would try to answer this question these days. Oh, oh boy. Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Who would I say that Jesus is? I think it's likely he existed as a person. The only human who ever lived a perfect life. No, was he a carpenter? He was a carpenter. Yeah. He was a good guy. Yeah, and he's also like a, like a picture of ideality, like a picture of work, a picture of extending care, a picture of love. Um, and as far as that's concerned, I would want to mirror him. I think he was clearly an illuminated man. I think he changed um, the course, in a way, of um, human humanity. Almost like a link between all religions. Um, I think what's remarkable about, about Jesus being one with God is that he, he would 
associate with us. <laughs> the magic of it isn't important to me, but the fact that he was kind of a real guy who who existed and had a following and like died for those beliefs and that those causes of like treat others as you would want to be treated, that sort of thing. That's the important thing to me, so. I mean, he was definitely tapped into something. I think he was tapped into the core of what a lot of religions and spirituality kind of revolves around. If he didn't die for our sins, I mean, we'll be dying for our sins. So all these fabulous concepts were presented by this person called Jesus, whether it's real, or whether it's just a figment of someone's imagination, that's irrelevant. So you can see here that uh, people were just as confused back in the first century as we are today, and vice versa. We're just as confused today as people were in the first century, of wondering who in the world is this guy, and, and what's his impact. We see that he's making some sort of, uh, some sort of like, like stir in the world back then, and maybe that's kind of even how people feel now. Like we, we sort of know about this guy, Jesus, but who is he really? And so it's a very, very, very important question, and the disciples had the same answer to the question of, you know, who do people say that I am? They had the same answer as Herod's advisors were telling Herod. Herod is this... Uh, this is Herod Antipas, who's one of these descendants of Herod the Great, who's this ruler in this region around Galilee. And so this guy, this, this sort of local regional ruler, he has like this like wondering about what's going on. So you've got disciples that are hanging out with Jesus. You've got crowds that are seeing what's going on. But then you have these rulers of the day that are asking, what's the deal with this guy? And Herod even is like, I already killed that John the Baptist guy because he was bugging me and making like a stir in my area. And now you've got this guy, like I thought I got rid of this guy. Maybe he just says he's killed the wrong guy even or something where he's realizing this, I don't, I don't like this guy necessarily because of all of the attention that he is getting, but he doesn't really know who Jesus is. But this question is so critical and important for all of us to recognize and understand of how would we answer this question? Because we can't avoid the real question by focusing on what other people think. Because you see where Jesus is kind of playing with the disciples a little bit, right? He's like, so who do people say that I am, right? And he's just kind of getting some broad answers. And they're probably answering like, oh yeah, they're saying all this. You're like a prophet. You're, you're somebody that's come back from the dead. John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You're just gonna be this, this great teacher in our land. And he sets them up because then he turns it on them, right? Who do you say I am? That's the key. That's the key question for all of us. Who do you say Jesus is? How do you answer this question from Jesus himself? Who do you say that I am? Because Jesus cares more about that than he cares about what other people say. The thing is with these sorts of questions, and it's really difficult in our world today for a lot of people to get this, but there is objective truth that this question has a very specific and right answer. There is a wrong answer, okay? That there is an objective truth about what something is or who someone is. In this way that this table here is a table and it's what does what tables do and it stands there and holds things and whatever. Like that's a table, right? Now you could say that's a, you know, this is a cloud. And it's just like, that's, 
your opinion, but that's not what it is. It remains a table in this way. And so there is an objective answer to the question. And this question, again, it's an objective answer to the most critical question of your entire life. The most important question that you can have an answer to is this one. Who do you say Jesus is? Because your opinion about that, your answer to that, won't change who he is. He remains who he is no matter what you say. But what's important in this to recognize is your answer to the question will affect your relationship to the thing you're answering about, and in this case, Jesus. So like, take for example, there's someone at your work that you, you, know, you believe them to be a liar. They're not a liar, actually, though, okay? So the objective truth about them is that they're not. They're telling the truth in all the things they do at their place of work. But you think they're a liar. Now, that doesn't change the fact that they are a truth teller, right? But it will very much so change your relationship to this person, how, what you think about them, how you treat them, how you act around them, how you live your life in response to them in some way, it will change that. So there is this way that what you think about something doesn't change the objective truth about it, but it does change your relationship to them. It's kind of like, uh, let's take the laws of gravity, okay? So the laws of gravity, you could be like, I don't believe in gravity, right? No, I don't believe in that. But if you were to walk up and step off this stage, you will still drop to the ground. And if you were to step off something a lot higher, you will still drop to the ground and break your legs, okay? Now, this is an important thing for us to understand because we can have an opinion or a belief about this thing, but that doesn't change the objective truth about it. But it does change, right, our relationship or how we live our life in response to it. If you recognize, okay, I, I believe in gravity, and I now will live my life in obedience to the rules and law of gravity, right? I will live my life according to it in that way. I'll respond with how I live in that way. Guess what? You're gonna live a lot more of a fruitful life, <laughs> a life that continues, a life that doesn't have your legs break when you drop off the top of the house, that sort of a thing. And so it's important for us to understand that how we think about something, our belief in something, it doesn't change the objective truth about it, but it does affect how we live, that there are repercussions into like what we believe about something. So there's repercussions about what we believe about who Jesus is. If we believe that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one sent from God, as Peter says, to Jesus in this case, that should very much affect how we live. Now, we also have to then understand, so what in the world is the Messiah? What in the world is son of the living God? What is, you know, when I'm saying this is what I believe, because Peter, <laughs> he says he believes this, and then like the next story is Peter saying, Jesus says like, I'm gonna die soon, and Peter's like, no way, you can't die, you'll never die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, right after Peter says all of this. And so we also have to understand what does then Messiah mean? Because I think Peter's understanding of what Jesus as Messiah meant is developing and growing, okay? So he's, he's growing closer to Jesus. He's being, you know, in that way, he's being formed to be more like Jesus, the more he spends time with him. And along the way, 
he might get some things wrong, but he's learning and growing as a disciple, right? That's what it means to learn to love and follow Jesus as we go along the way with him. And so, again, people were confused. People were confused in the first century. We're confused today, and we need to be able to get this question right, though. Who do you say I am, Jesus says. What we believe about Jesus impacts everything. Now, to continue to answer this question, I want to now look at a different story or a different um, one of the different gospels, because this story, we just read it in Luke. Jen read it in Luke for us. And then it's also in the gospel of Matthew. And so I want you to turn, just maybe you're in Luke, just go a few pages back to Matthew, and we'll look at Matthew 16. Because the Matthew uh, account of this very same story, it's the same story, but just with a little more detail. Matthew is probably more of a numbers guy like Michael as he came up here. And so Matthew uh, had the details maybe down <laughs> a little bit more in that way. Um, all right, so Matthew six thirteen. We're just gonna read this first verse and then we're gonna stop there for a second. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And so we're going to look at this question because I believe that we can storm the gates of hell once we know who Jesus really is. And you'll see as we keep reading why I'm using those words, okay? But we can accomplish great things for the kingdom of God in the face of great evil even when we know who Jesus really is. We can storm the very gates of hell. Now, this, this story, we need to understand location. Location is one of the most important things to understanding this story well, and even understanding this question and what Jesus is doing as he takes his disciples to this place. So we saw there in verse 13, it says they go to Caesarea Philippi. They're coming from Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi. It's both up in the sense of uh, up a hill, and it's also up in the sense of when we look at a map and we say up when we mean north. Okay, so it's north, <laughs> and it's also kind of up uh, a bit of a hill. It's 25 miles away and an uphill walk. So he says, he, Jesus is taking them to this place, 25 miles and a lot of uphill, a lot of elevation gain on the way to specifically ask them this question. He wants them to be in this place, I think, when he asks them this question. And you'll see here a bit more about like why and what's going on in that. So Caesarea, what's that remind you of? Okay, think about it. Caesar, okay, who's Caesar? Caesar's the emperor of Rome, the leader of the entire Roman Empire, the most powerful person in the entire world, or at least this region of the world. And he is in, like he rules over this area of the world in, in Israel, in the Middle East. He is just... He is both ruler and considered God, right? He's to be worshiped by the people under his empire. And then uh, Caesarea Philippi, another one of Herod's descendants, Herod Philip, who is the ruler in this area. So Antipas is a little farther south, and then uh, Philip is this ruler a little farther north in this region. And so they name it the city after Caesar, a little bit of, you know, trying to kiss up a bit, right? So you want to name your city after Caesar, and then you name it after yourself as well. And so that's what's going on with, with Caesarea Philippi. And it is, that means like 
this is a Roman city, okay? So it's a Roman city. It's a city like the Decapolis, or if you remember when the disciples with Jesus went across Galilee to the other side of the lake, to this region of the pagans, of the Gentiles, this region that would be very much unclean to Jewish people, right? So you've got unclean eating practices, all sorts of other things, as well as um, worship of false gods. And, and you'll see even more here in a moment how crazy this place was. But it's a, it's a lush green and beautiful area. You might have a picture of Israel in your mind that's um, like all desert, okay? That the whole place is desert. Well, as you get up to this area, it's just rivers and creeks and trees and brush, just beautiful, a very green area. And so in this day, in this time, what you would have happen is people would say, wow, like whoever controls this area must have great gods, They've got all the water they need. They've got all that they need to grow their crops, that they have um, these beautiful cities that are brought in by the Romans. They must have great gods. Yahweh God was great in the desert, but does he have that same kind of power in this place? They would worship uh, there like in Old Testament times. I'll show you a a picture of this spot here where where they are. And you can see this creek at the bottom that's springing forth here. This is the very beginnings of the Jordan River, where the Jordan River is bubbling, it's beginning and bubbling up out of the ground, and then it's gonna flow south into the Sea of Galilee, which I just say is the wider part of the Jordan River, and then it goes back narrower again, and then keeps going down to the Dead Sea. And so you've got the beginnings of it there, and then you have this crazy rock face and this cave. And so you can see all that, but then in more of the Old Testament times, there was likely high, like what were called high places. So up above the top of this cliff, they'd say a high place with, with uh, idols or Asherah poles, so these, these idols to the gods of Asherah and Baal. These were fertility gods of that day, gods that would be said to bring fertility to the soil and fertility to the people, that these were gods that were gods of rain and storms and things like that. And so they would worship these gods in this place. But then now this place has become a place of worship of Roman gods. Uh, They would worship Caesar. They would worship Zeus, and they would worship uh, a god called Pan, And so what they did was, this is kind of a recreation of what it would have looked like here, is that they've set up in that same spot uh, these temples to Pan, to Zeus, to Caesar. And this would be a place of worship of these gods. I'm telling you all this because you got to understand this place. This place is pretty wild. And so this is a place where all of this would happen. These fertility gods are being worshipped. Pan is also what would be called a fertility god. Pan was uh, half man, half goat, uh, and Pan would bring fertility to the people. Now, if you look at uh, the, the picture again with the cave, you can see that cave there. That cave was known as uh, the cave of Pan, or was also called like an entrance to the underworld, or the gate of Hades was what this uh, cave was. And um, there's this guy named Josephus, he was a, a, a historian 
back then in this time in the first century, a guy that would write histories back in the first century, Jewish, but then like hung out with the Romans. So I think that's why his writings would, were able to, to last maybe a bit more as he hung out with the Romans. But he, he wrote about this cave. And he wrote saying that this cave that it says, quote, hard by the foundations of Jordan, like the beginnings of the Jordan River, he says there is the top of a mountain that is raised to an immense height. And at its side, beneath or at its bottom, a dark cave opens. It contains a mighty quantity of water, which is immovable. And when anybody lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. So that cave, as we look again at that cave on the, the side there, it's, there, there's like a, at the time, there was this water that would go straight down and they couldn't, they would lower a rope and try and get it as far down as they could and they, they didn't have any rope that could go far enough. In between the first century and now, there was a massive, massive earthquake in this region and the, the rubble filled in that cave. So now it is completely filled in and now the, the Jordan kind of springs forth in a little bit lower, kind of a little closer to us in perspective of that picture there. But this is what they thought about this cave, that this cave was this, this gate to the underworld. And what, so they, they knew that then Pan was the one they needed to bring them fertility to the soil and to themselves. And what the, the way that the sort of the myth goes is that Pan would die each year, okay? Pan would die each year and go back to the underworld. And then the people had to entice Pan to come back to grant them um, this fertility. And so they would have these... Um, practices that they would do that I literally just cannot even say anything about basically on this stage because of how horrific X-rated and sexually deviant these things were that they would do in this place outside of this, these temples to entice the God of Pan to come and to give their land fertility and to give their people fertility. This is a place that Jewish people would not go. Jewish people would stay away. Roman city, unclean. Not just ritually unclean, horrifically, sinfully unclean. Crazy stuff would happen here. Super, super crazy. And so Jewish people just don't go to this place. But then Jesus brings his disciples very specifically to this place and sits at the foot of these temples to Zeus and to Pan and to Caesar himself. And he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Well, you're a prophet. You know, you're, they say that you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah. Who do you say? that I am. Where are you finding all that you need? Who do you believe that I am? The people of Caesarea, the people of Caesarea Philippi could care less who he is. Or they just add him to the wall. You know, they'd be like, oh, this guy does some cool stuff. Let's make another little house for him up here, right? Let's, let's worship him as well. They'd add him maybe to the, to the whole pantheon of gods. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is saying, that is not the answer. I'm not an add-on. I'm not another one for your wall. 
Who do you say that I am? And so let's continue to read, and we'll be reminded of what the answer is and what Peter says. Who do you say that I am? Verse 14, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell. If you have an NLT Bible, you'll see there's a little asterisk there because the Greek actually says gates of Hades, okay? Uh, it's important for us in this part to get the more literal translation. And the gates of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Or bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So they've seen all his great deeds. And Peter answers basically, you're, you're it. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the chosen one. You're the one that's supposed to come and save us. Now, does Peter understand what that means? As we've said, I don't know. I don't think he fully does understand all of what that means to say he is the Messiah, but he's on the right track. And Jesus says, God's giving you that answer. You're answering that because God's giving you that. And that is awesome. And guess what, Peter? I'm changing your, well, it was Simon. Simon, I'm changing your name to Peter. Now your name is Peter, which means rock. Which means rock. And so here at this place at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is like, I don't want you hiding from evil. Let me take you to the place that's the most evil I can think of. And I will tell you now that you as my followers, we are gonna storm the gates of hell. And that doesn't mean going and slaying the infidel, okay? That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is then taking the love of Jesus, taking that love and message of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus, and that is gonna change everything, even these most dark places. This gospel will not stop in the darkest of places. The disciples end up going, most of them, head north of Israel into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that was just all Roman cities, and they're going from Roman city to Roman city to Roman city, and then all the way to Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell could not prevail against it. And so we are sent out in that same way. We are sent out to say, doesn't matter what kind of evil would come up against us. It doesn't matter how hopeless it would seem that the gospel would be to an evil culture. The power and love of Jesus will prevail. The power and love and the grace of Christ can go into the darkest of places and not be stopped. That is our hope, that is our prayer, and that is then how we should live. That this sort of, this, this gate cannot come against it. But also just like a point of interest here. Okay, so upon this rock, I will build my church. There's a few options for the answer to this question. You think like, what, what is the rock, okay? What's the rock? Upon what rock? Maybe you'd think uh, really immediately of, well, it just says right there, Peter's name is changed to rock. 
So upon this rock, I'll build my church. That's definitely like the Roman Catholic Church's answer is the first pope and all that. That's like how, how we get to this, right? And so then there's, that's, an, that's an option. Well, then Peter, the guy who's called rock, he writes in 1 Peter 2 and says, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the rock. He writes and calls Jesus rock. Okay, well, Jesus is there. Is it Jesus? Or is it this giant rock in the background? Maybe it's that, right? Uh, we've got three rocks. Which one are we going to choose? You can do it like the easy answer might be, you know, D, all of the above. <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, I really tend to think it's the rock in the background. It's the rock that they're sitting next to. Hey, guess what, guys? Upon this, even this rock, this rock of evil deeds and even these gods, even Caesar himself, upon this rock, I will build my church because nothing can stop the mission of Jesus in the world. It might seem hopeless against the Roman Empire. You, you feel hopeless against culture that comes against Christ in this day and age? But again, our mission and our goal is not to change a godless culture to moral. You hear that? Our mission is not to change a godless culture to share Christian morality. Our mission is for the name of Jesus to be proclaimed and for people to be able to answer, who do you say I am? I believe, Jesus, you are God himself, the creator of the universe. You are Savior and you are Lord. You are the King of kings, the Prince of peace. You are everything, God. That's the answer. That's the answer to the question. I see that clap over there. Thank you. <laughs> and that's true. Like, we got to believe. We got to think, like, nothing can stop that mission. Nothing of what we feel so hopeless in the midst of, like, the darkness of our day. But sometimes I feel more hopeless in the strategy of Christians out there to go try and make people moral. Or to have some sort of, like, we're going to change the politics of America or something. And that's what matters. What matters is the gospel of the good news of Jesus. That's our mission. That's our call. And the gates of hell cannot stop it. And so let's get on board with that mission. And let's go and live our lives in a way that answers the question with how we live. May how we live answer the question of who we say Jesus is. Because we can say that we claim Christ, but then we treat Jesus like the great suggester, right? A good teacher. He's got some stuff that we should maybe, I'm gonna think about that. That's like, that's, that's deep, man. You know, I'm gonna think about that. We'll see, I might apply one of six things to my life, but you know, I mean, it's good, right? That's kind of sometimes the way we live. What do we live in full submission? If he is king of kings, lord of lords, creator of the universe, savior, like, are we living in such a way that, that bears the repercussions of that? Like, is it living in that way as Peter then ended up living, radically sold out for the gospel, radically knowing that only the grace of God can save, not our good works, but our hope is found in Jesus alone, the source of all hope. And so let's live it. Let's live our lives to answer that question. I might even ask you, like, just this weird little hypothetical situation to consider this. What if you, like, 
there's this, there's just like this thing that all of a sudden the way the world was going to work now, like some sort of sci-fi novel or something. What if you involuntarily, if someone said, who do you say Jesus is? You would involuntarily just take on a physical posture that would reveal your heart's true answer. <laughs> what if like, that's just how the world worked all of a sudden. And then somebody just says, who do you think Jesus is? And then it's like, boom, you're just like on your knees, right? Or something like that. Or boom, your hands are up. Or who do you say Jesus is? And you're like, arms folded, turn away. Whatever, like, whatever physical posture that would be. That'd be scary to go to church with that happening. <laughs> and you're around here. And I don't want to put that kind of fear. But what I want to put is just like, when you think about what, that, what would happen if someone asked you that question in a world where that would occur, what would happen to you? Take a moment. What do you think would happen to your physical posture? Hands raised or arms folded? It's not a question of guilt. It's a question of reality. Where is your heart? How does the depth of your heart answer this question of who do you say that Jesus is? It is the most important question that anyone could ask you in your entire life. Your answer to this is everything, literally everything. The beauty is that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that God allows you to answer that question in the right way. Because it's his grace that grants you clothes of righteousness. We sang earlier, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Are you dressed in a prophet's righteousness? Are you dressed in a good teacher's righteousness? Are you dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Because that's the only way we have hope at all. Because we are dressed by him, by his righteousness, we are made clean. We are saved. And that's a beautiful thing. That grace is incredible. So be blessed by that. But acknowledge where you are. Acknowledge the truth of your heart's answer to that question of who you say Jesus is. And so we are going to go into a time of worship through singing again, but it's also going to be a time of response and prayer. And so I'll ask leaders, whoever um, would want to do that, to come to our um, prayer points to be able to be available for, for praying with. And I'd love for you just to come during this couple songs, if you'd like just to pray in some way to receive the power and grace needed to live in dependence on Jesus as Lord how you would answer that question. You want to pray to receive Christ as Savior, as Lord. Maybe you never, maybe right now you think, you know what, I don't know what my physical posture would be. Well, come and pray and acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's my prayer for you. It is literally the most important thing you could do in your entire life is answer that question for the first time in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for, for Jesus. Thank you 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Lord, I pray that for each person here, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would penetrate the depths of their heart to answer this question in response to you, Lord, of belief in you, belief in you as both Lord and Savior, God. Thank you. Thank you that you are our King. And thank you that while we are still sinners, imperfect, unclean, you died for us to make us perfect and clean, God. And so, Lord, we believe that. We believe that you died and rose again. We trust in you for our eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.